The 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium is going digital and will take place over four weekends from the 6th to the 28th of June 2020. For more information and to register your place, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Monique Lewis, who's a sociologist and lecturer in media and communication at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. Her research spans across media, health and medicine and risk sociologies, with a particular interest in herbal medicine, complementary and alternative medicine, CAM, and medicinal cannabis. Her investigations have focused on news and biomedical media representations of herbal medicine and CAM, as well as exploring how risk is constructed in these representations by a range of different interest groups. Her more recent research has investigated the delegitimization of CAM in news media stories, as well as analysing articles on medicinal cannabis in biomedical professional journals. Welcome to FX Medicine, Monique, how are you? Thanks, Andrew. It's really good to be here. I'm quite honoured. I should have said Dr. Monique Lewis because you have a PhD. I do. That's right. (laughs) Thank you for that. Now, Monique, you've done a lot of research, but why do this research? What's the reason? So back some years, I was starting my PhD research. I was looking at how herbal medicine was represented in news media as well as biomedical media. And this actually came in the wake of the pan-pharmaceuticals crisis, let's say. So, you know, Australia's largest recall ever, I think, of medicine. Yes. I think it still is the largest recall. Um, So the complementary medicine industry suffered quite phenomenally. And we saw some, you know, some interesting lead and, and valuable leadership from some of the, in, you know, some of the leading industry organisations that weren't as badly affected. Um, I think Blackmores was one of those. And I wanted to just have a look at what the, what was happening in the news landscape, the media scape, if you like. Mm. Uh, as well as some of the biomedical, like the Medical Journal of Australia. I wanted to look at how herbal medicine was being framed in these stories. So with the, when I say framing, I'm, I'm talking about the, you know, the kind of angle, uh, what is, what is made most salient in the overall story. And that comes from, um, a line, whole line of communication researchers, um, and Robert Entman is a really important communication scholar that does framing analysis. Mm. So that was where I kind of, that was my starting point was herbal medicine. And I found quite a, a high, a very high rate of references to risk. At the same time in this study, um, there were, you know, a surprising number of references to efficacy as well across these news stories. So I stuck with news stories, not sort of lifestyle list outs or anything like that. Um, so then we had, uh, in, uh, later on in the 2000s and 2011, uh, another 
um, well, a lobby group started up, which consisted of a group of doctors and scientists and other just lay people can be members of this particular lobby group as well. They're called the Friends of Science and Medicine. And their agenda was, at the time, was to try and uh, rid universities of complementary uh, complementary medicine courses. Mm-hmm. So their concern that they articulated was that it, it, it wasn't scientifically credible, thus had no place in the university system. So um, this, you know, of course, I, I was involved in um, a university environment. Um, I think I was close to submitting my PhD at the time or had already submitted it. So I was sort of watching it with interest, what was going on and how universities were reacting to this. Uh, and over time, you know, just so I did, you know, observe the studies over time and I guess it was one of those things that bugged me a bit and I thought, mm, I just want to put this under the microscope a little more carefully and see, and just map this out mm. and see what's really happening. So what are the most predominant frames across these news stories that mention Friends of Science in Medicine? Are they are they all negative? You know, what sort of... T- so I measured for tone. I had a whole list of different frames that that kind of that, that were most prevalent. Yeah. And for those frames, I, looking at those frames, I drew on earlier research that I'd that I'd undertaken, as well as some research of others. So people like um, a naturopath called Jeff Flat and a sociologist called Cara Brosnan had, had written articles about the Friends of Science and Medicine as well. Um, okay, so what were the findings of your research? Right, so between 2011 and 2017, so I was looking at, I'll just clarify that I was only looking at articles referring to Friends of Science and Medicine, um, I found uh, 76 articles um, that met the inclusion criteria. Mm. And what I found in terms of uh, tone overall with headline and article tone was that you know, there was 68% rate of negativity and uh, 23% rate of neutrality and only 9% of the seven articles carried a positive tone. Um, and then the, the general tone towards complementary medicine was um, there was uh, 42 articles that were, were quite negative towards complementary medicine, 21 articles that had a mixed tone, eight articles neutral, three articles positive. Now, it's probably uh, dull me talking about it over, you know, to, to listeners, but you can, I can um, give you access to my paper if, if people want to sort of look at the data more carefully. So that's regarding the intonation, but you know, I also wanted to talk about this uh, or to look at the frames. What were the, some of the most common frames that came out of this study? What so, interests me there, though, is you, you're talking yeah. about the frame how how it how it is intonated or inferred, if you like. Um, but there was 23 percent that were neutral. Yes. So yes. so that was me. So. I I'd measured tone and frames separately. So the framing right. was, uh, descri- you know, a description of what the overall frame uh. um, towards the issue was going to be. So it might have been that CAM is illegitimate or CAM is legitimate yep. or that the evidence for CAM is good or that it is poor. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's about regulation of the profession. So that's, that's what I mean by 
by um, frames. But I did deliberately measure tone separately because I just wanted to get a feel for the, you know, across all the articles, what the general, what the general tone uh, was in relation to complementary gotcha. medicine. And was it complementary medicine in general across the board, or were there? Uh, particular pockets or professions that were singled out, like herbal medicine practitioners, nutritional practitioners, naturopaths? Yeah, so that's that's a good point. Um, so I was looking across the board. So I did divide it into uh, supplements or herbal medicines. Yep. Um, I looked at uh, chiropractic, um, naturopaths as well. Um, so I, I did, yeah, but, but the overall search sort of factored in all of those elements. Gotcha. Now, I'll give you the the most common frames that came out of this study. So the most common frame um, referred to complementary medicine as being part of a lucrative or unethical industry. So it's something like um, 32 articles. And it highlighted the concerns about the can industry as being led by profit-driven companies and unethical conduct. Um, as well, and this also came into play over this period, the university industry research collaborations and the risk that this posed um, about bias towards positive findings that favour the industry's agenda. So that was quite an interesting uh, finding, I thought, because that was included, that as a frame was included in my, my earlier study, uh, the 2011 study, and rarely came up, that idea of lucrative, unethical industry. And in, actually, in the more recent look at how um, cannabis has been reported in biomedical publications in Australia, again, that's not something that isn't coming up very much. Right. And yet, when we look at drugs, or pharmaceutical drugs, wasn't there an expose done on pharmaceuticals looking at the markup of drugs compared to the actual molecule of them? So yes. some of these yes. drugs, for instance some of the biologicals, the monoclonal antibodies, for instance, some of them cost thousands of dollars for three vials, three injections. I guess the issue that I have is inequity. It's like if you're going to, if you're going to say it, okay, look, have an opinion, I get it, but compare it to something. Yes. Um, and what, what you were referring to there also is what became known, I think starting in the 70s and through the 80s, as um, the medical industrial complex. So that connection, um, affiliation between um, medicine uh, in terms of the practice between the pharmaceutical industry and, and commercial interest as this overall machine. But what what I observed in this study was, uh, and here's a quote um, from, the, from one of the Friends of Science and Medicine spokespeople in relation to one of the university collaborations with industry, um, there would be pressure on the researchers with $15 million at stake. We wouldn't really want to produce negative results. Now, uh, rather than this coming across as an admission of what might go on when biomedical research and the pharmaceutical industry consort, which is where you would think, yeah, this happens in this happens in the biomedical, um, pharmaceutical or medical industrial complex. This is a key problem. But rather than it coming across in that way, the reasoning being put forward is that that this is kind of a new can industrial complex. Even today, I was reading a story 
um, regarding NPS medicine-wise in Australia, which is supposed mm. to be an authoritative research devoid of commercial interest. And we find out that there's a sort of arm of medicine-wise, which has indeed been commercial. What's happened, though, that arm is now closing down and the things that were of commercial nature are supposedly being handled in-house, i.e. one thing. So does that not taint one of our most honoured, um, unbiased resources with regards to pharmaceutical medicines? Indeed, it's a really, really valid point there, Andrew. So it's it just it's like what goes around comes around. If you, if it's going to be done, let's look at it all. And it's socially valuable to look at this because it it does all you know it ties into the whole neoliberalisation of healthcare more broadly that we're seeing, where you know we're all becoming kind of we're having to self-regulate and be self-disciplined, good good citizens. It's part of our moral obligation and duty to look after our health. And of course, governments benefit from that yeah. um, because it has, you know, it, it means a more preventative approach, which saves money across, um, you know, it saves money across the health sector in the, in the long run, it certainly saves the government a lot of money. So, yeah, that, that it, it is an inequity and it's, I just, I'm, it bugs me because it's also not very, Intellectually rigorous. Yeah. Uh, well, and, look, and it, it reduces what's going on with this particular group. It just highlights, I suppose, that it's an ideological movement, and it's, it's there's a lot of uh, political motivation there, absolutely. Rather than what you would hope would be a more genuine concern. And I'm not saying they that the group members are. You know, just self-interested. I believe they they actually feel that they're doing the right thing, but probably lack a bit of reflection on the biases that are influencing uh, their whole approach. Yeah. Um, now there was another frame um, that came up a lot as well that, that uh, after the lucrative industry one, and that was the illegitimacy of complementary medicine. Right. So it, it it conveyed Cam as illegitimate, pseudoscientific, quackery, nonsense. Um, so, of course, articles with that sort of frame had negative headlines yes. and tone. Um, and they tended to relate to stories that had framings suggesting that Cam shouldn't be taught in university programs or the state shouldn't support it in the healthcare system. And, you know, in terms of the most, the primary sources that, that I found in these articles, um, I mean, you know, across the board, the FSM was the primary voice, followed by industry, actually, industry representatives from the complementary medicine industry for, for balance. Right, right. Uh, but not professionals? Uh, fewer professionals. Um, so, firstly, we had the most, most prominent sources were um, Friends of Science in Medicine spokespeople. So, it was 41 out of the 76 articles. Um, then you had a professional, people from professional CAM bodies. So, that was um, at 20, 20 articles. And then we had university, but from biomedical science. So, there was 18 of those. And uh, followed by a professional, a, a spokesperson from a professional biomedical body. 
Uh, university management came up quite a bit because of that attack on the university system. So vice chancellors were having to sort of justify right. justify themselves across these stories. But complementary medicine researchers from universities were hardly ever quoted. It's interesting, isn't it? Was there any reference in these articles about the historical pharmacy um, subject or elective now um, called pharmacognosy, which, of course, where pharmacy began? No, I didn't come across any, any reference to that at all Interesting. In, in the article. Yeah. And, and it's, to me, it is really problematic that... I mean, I probably should have started with this, but it, in the whole media landscape, you know, I'm looking as a... As a communications scholar, I'm looking at uh, news as something that's constructed over time. And I've mortified a journalist the other day in a lecture because I referred to that construction process and she was offended that I thought that she was someone that would construct news. But I explained to her, it's not that you're there fabricating it and making it up. It's just there's a lot of forces there influencing how, how a news story Evolves, so it's not just about the journalist; it's about their the media organisation, the news outlet's values itself. But there's also the the idea of uh, news values, how news values that a journalist carries when you know what what makes a story interesting. And I think Friends of Science and Medicine have been fairly good at exploiting the you know the conflict negativity uh, angle. And that, of course, appeals. Plus, plus that idea of consonance, something that that um, journalists might take up because it's you know it's a common knowledge or it's not a yeah. knowledge, but a common understanding that you know the cam is you know the, the that link between cam and um, medical hucksters or quackery. Yeah. That's a kind of it's become a popular narrative that that gets. It's kind of become the default position, and of course, as we know, that's um, and you know, listening to your podcasts, uh, with you know, there's a lot of scientific content on on some really good research that's being undertaken. It just it ignores all of that. My issue is when you'll get uh, orthodox health professionals decrying the quackery of, let's say, herbal medicine, and yet they <laughs> yes. have been purveyors of herbal medicine for decades. <laughs> Yeah, and arguably, uh, you know, what we're seeing in the media landscape with medicinal cannabis yes. is certainly, certainly not a delegitimization. So I've, I've looked across some biomedical journals in Australia, and that is not what we're seeing. We're, it is, you know, overwhelmingly being reported on in these publications, like, a, you know, Medical Journal of Australia, Australian Doctor, as a legitimate... Uh, medicine with a role to play in the Australian healthcare system. Yeah. It, it, it does look at oh, – lucrative industries hardly looked at at all, that idea of – which is also interesting because you've got some, you know, clinics opening up that, that might be um, providing product, supplying the product that gets sold to the patients, which, you know, is arguably problematic and needs to be scrutinised yes. and overseen. Yes. Um, One of my issues is – a knowledge deficit of a practitioner outside of their realm of expertise. So, for instance, we've recently seen a paper come up about glucosamine and the side effects, 
And yet mm. the in interesting thing, thing that I picked out of, from that was the date range that was chosen was 2000 to 2011. Well, we're in mm -hmm. 2020. Um, there's, a, there's a, you know, eight, nine, eight years of data there that was excluded. Why? It didn't take long for me to find that. I just went date range. Um, so where's the scientific rigor? So the where's the rigor? What, like, my mm. question is, it then it then creates questions or, of doubt in my mind or of agenda. Um, mm. Whereas I did the same search for the date range with ibuprofen and there was far more side effects, far more deaths. So again, mm. there's that inequity. We're speaking about cannabis and there was a recent um, paper very smartly titled cannabinoids fail with pain now the inference is cannabis the actual truth of the article was not on cannabis in its complexity it was on the drug isolated cannabinoid product so re in reality the failure was on that product mm. not on cannabis in its entirety but there's mm. it that wasn't it was conveniently omitted it is potentially a lot riskier for a journalist to come down on a pharmaceutical product. Right. right. There's a lot less scrutiny of of the journalist over, you know, a negative can story. Right. And like they're not, they're, they perhaps feel less likely that that you know there's going to be any sort of repercussion. And and I actually think that the cam industry has become a little bit quiet in a, in a number of ways with with um, with this sort of thing right um, and I, I did I did speak at um, complementary medicines Australia invited me to speak at um, their, one of their events last year the, the annual conference and there's been this you know senior spokespeople from industry and um, senior researchers who've become media shy and really reluctant to be interviewed. Um, and this is, you know, perhaps due to some really negative experiences that they might have had in the past with, with being interviewed because mm -hmm. they feel that it's a done deal. It's, they know how the frame is going to end up. So yeah. they've perhaps learnt to just not go there. Yeah. Um, that's sort of some of the that's some of the feedback I've had from from industry people. Um, the SBS did an insight, their, their insight program I think it was earlier last year, um, and they, they it was featuring or the, the topic was the supplements industry. Right. So they had a number of consumers on the program talking about it. They had um, they had a representative from Friends of Science and Medicine. They had a TGA representative, and something I said at this Complementary Medicines Association conference was, you know, Blackmores were there. And they participate, and I, I really noticed that because it would be two people from Blackmores. And my point was, where were you all? Where were the rest of you at this at this um, at this event at yeah. this insight discussion? And you know, it was quite an important thing, probably, to have a presence. And, and Blackmores were actually thanked by the host at the end of the show for being the only company that accepted the invitation to attend. Ah, okay, so they were invited. Yes. Right. Yeah. So um, there's a bit of bravery required there from industry. And I think that might, you know, that includes speaking out when, you know, not just, you know, promoting things when they're good, but also speaking out when, when you, you know, when you might 
see some unethical activity. Absolutely. Um, in, in, you know, that, that is associated with, you know, the complementary medicine. Yes, industry. absolutely. I think it's, that's important as well. And I, but I understand why people have become really, really reticent. Yeah. But it, it just ties, it ties in with communication ethics. Okay, so what does I guess the first thing is what is the real risk of natural medicines in their entirety in Australia? And the second thing, the second part is what does all of this mean for people working in the complementary arena, the complementary medicine professions? Well, I'd probably in terms of the risk side of things um, and in terms of understanding what the real risk is, um, that's a big one. <laughs> Um, part of the problem, I guess, is considering that is that it, it is, and is that we don't fall into the trap of we, we, we tend to just this umbrella term of complementary medicine can be a little problematic. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because a group like Friends of Science and Medicine will say that this includes, um, you know, urine therapy. They'll align urine therapy with something. They'll speak about that in the same breath as herbal medicine. Right. So that's really really problematic. Yes. To, and, and and each you know, each each profession and each um you know, the, the products carry, you know, might carry their own risks and you know, some will be higher than others. And by the way, a risk you know, references to risk don't necessarily negate a product. I mean in in the um, medicinal cannabis study, there's a, quite a lot of reference to, you know, the safety issues are a little bit unknown and we need to make sure and um but that's not negating the product itself. And I did find that in, in my study from 2011 on herbal medicine. And despite that high level of reference to risk, there was also quite a, a, a substantial reference to efficacy, so an acknowledgement of herbal medicine's efficacy. Well, that's rather right. Than the, rather than the delegitimization trainings and the, the unethical industry framings that we're seeing in these Friends of Science and Medicine stories. This is so controversial. I mean, <laughs> you could you could have a year and still not really drill down into it because there's so many variables, Monique. Um, it's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and a limitation of this study too is that I it's only looking at these FSM stories. It's not looking more broadly. What would be valuable um, is to look. Uh, more broadly, at, at least whether the, the, their work has impacted more broadly on complementary medicine, um, how complementary medicine is being represented in news stories. Yes, but uh, also there's a there is a real need for people who actually know about what they're talking about to do the research. For instance, when you talk about probiotics for antibiotic associated diarrhoea, a probiotic is not paracetamol. A probiotic is hundreds, if not thousands of organisms, only 14 of which are licensed for use in Australia. But what happens is when you do a meta-analysis of all of the different studies, looking at all of the different probiotics of all of the different genuses and species, um, and you lump it all into one meta-analysis, it comes up with, now it doesn't work. Well, that's not mm. really knowledgeable, is it? Because you really need no. to look at, okay, you ha really have to look at species, the particular characteristics of that organism and what that really does in the end for humans. So, mm. you know, again, like I worry, do, am I being, you know, suspicious here, over suspicious, or is there a real, you know, agenda going on? Well, from a media perspective, so let's, we're looking at the news media landscape here, 
these this sort of depth and level of analysis is often very unappealing in a news reporting context because there's a lot that has to be, be fleshed out. And that includes when there's debates and arguments about you know, about the findings of a systematic review or meta-analysis, for example. It's not something that, that many journalists... Well, often they don't know how to navigate or, or compre- even comprehend the sort of language that's applied in, in those sorts of studies. So it is, you know, that, I mean, as a starting point, that, that, is, a, that is a huge problem. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's messy. It's too messy to be able to nail it in a, in a quick news piece. Yeah, just a, a last point on that sort of inequity topic. You know, we've mentioned a, a recent piece on glucosamine looking at hypersensitivity reactions. And yet when you look at other research in this, it shows very, very few at least severe reactions. Now, these were reported, but then there's a lot of data that's missing out of these reports on what's called the DAEN in Australia, the Database of Adverse Event Notification, which anybody can search. What I find strange is that this glucosamine hypersensitivity story was quickly taken up by the newspapers. What I find strange is that just the other day a story broke regarding macrolide antibiotic birth defects. Now, this was reported in the British Medical Journal. It's a very um, honourable journal. It was picked up by the New York Times and a few papers overseas. There was zero news articles in Australia. There was, I think, the ABC may have picked it up, right? But because after you, because you had mentioned that to me, and I, I did a little quick factive research to see, you know, what what's going on with this, with this stuff, and um, what I found was there were only, so this is quite extraordinary from a finding like that because I would have thought it's quite important for pregnant women to be aware of this health information. Yes. Um, the, so the uptake, you know, even though a number of news outlets, you know, took it up, it, 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 it wasn't on the sort of scale that, that one might expect. And it was something, I think I found, I think the total was 38 articles. That yeah. came, and this is around the world. That would have probably included that BMJ article. I did it really quickly before the interview. So, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to get a feel for it. Um, but, uh, and then I just put in uh, chondroitin and risk and I had up near 100 for the same period of time. So what do we need to do as practitioners to, A, educate ourselves, but also to be able to have a louder voice to educate our patients and, and the general public in what's really going on with complementary medicine and, indeed, what the real risks and benefits are? Mm. Well, one thing I'll say first up is that I think these particular stories are not necessarily appealing or going to influence patients and consumers, and I don't think they're designed to. I actually, you know, my theory is they're designed to gain the attention of the policymakers. Ah. Yes. I mean, so for me, any of my media research, any of the media research I undertake my my main concern is that it will um, offer some value for people, for all of us developing a better 
uh, critical media literacy. Now, health literacy is obviously part of this as well, and I don't think we have time to go into the health literacy side of things today. But, um, you know, from a perspective of understanding how mediations, um, how framing, how certain rhetoric can influence our, our uptake of, of um, certain health behaviours, uh, is, I think, in the end, that is ultimately a really valuable thing. There's so much to uncover here, and it needs a sleuth like yourself to uncover it. Dr Monique Lewis, thank you so much for taking us through. This is a very messy topic, I've got to say, but thank you for taking us through it today on FX Medicine. Thanks, Andrew. Lovely to talk with you all. Thanks. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're a regular visitor to the FX Medicine website, you would have seen many of our great infographics. These are all now available for use in your clinic. You can download them for free. And the high-resolution versions are available for purchase as A3 or A2 posters or as a digital file. Simply click on the button beneath your favourite infographics at fxmedicine.com.au.